Good morning. It's always a privilege to uh, fill in for Chuck uh, as he takes a little break and is out, either out of town or returning from town. Um, and it's also a privilege to um, speak the word into a congregation of which I'm a member of, which we're a part, which we have people serving our own family and our children even now. Uh, our, uh, our seven-year-old son, Adam, he used to suffer from night terrors. Uh, night terrors are a fairly common occurrence among young children. And thankfully, most like Adam outgrow those. Uh, but they're no fun when they take place. I don't know if you've ever experienced a night terror, uh, but it's pretty frightening, not just for the child, but for the parent as well. Uh, you see, during a night terror, you can see the, the fear in your child's eyes. And I say you can see it because their eyes are open. Um, even though they're fully asleep. They, they will speak intelligibly. They'll make sense. They'll say maybe that they see things coming towards them. Sometimes they'll flail. Um, they'll make motions to defend themselves. They're overwhelmed, just generally speaking, they're overwhelmed by a sense of dread. And they will cry out, they'll sob, and even scream. The worst part about a night terror is that even though the child will wake up the next morning um, happy, glad, not the worse for wear because they have no recollection of the terror they encountered, um, they seem to be inconsolable in the moment. Of course, that doesn't, whoa. That doesn't keep us from trying to help. Um, when Adam has a night terror, Brianna and I will usually bring him out of his room. We don't want him waking up his brother, of course, and sleeps with him. And, and we'll hold on to him and talk to him, try and talk him down and out of it, and tell him things are okay. We'll say things like, don't be afraid, Adam. Don't be afraid. Mommy's here. Daddy's here. Adam, it's me. It's Daddy. I'm here. Don't be afraid. Sometimes one of us will just crawl into bed with him. And even though they say that night terrors are inconsolable, um, I don't know if this is just wishful thinking or if it just, it's just passing on its own or if it's really having an effect, but eventually we see his breathing slow down. In fact, it actually kind of happens instantaneously, and he'll fall back into that peaceful and blissful slumber that he was enjoying before the terror came upon him. I like to think, I don't know, but I like to think that it makes a difference to him that we're there, that we're even maybe in the same bed with him. This morning we read an account of Christ's disciples being terrified, being frightened, but their fear turned to gladness when they realized, first of all, it was Jesus, and then also when he got into the boat with them. Since our reading came earlier in our service, I think it's easy to forget what we read, um, and so let me take a couple of minutes to just unpack this scene that John has set for us so that we can appreciate the fear of the disciples. Why were they so afraid? Well, first of all, uh, John testifies, and remember that he was there, he was one of the disciples, he would have been in the boat, that they were separated from Jesus. The last verse of last week's passage said that the crowds that Jesus had intended, or the crowds that Jesus had fed, they intended to come and, and just kind of by force make him king over them. But Jesus withdrew. He withdrew to a mountain by himself. And as is his M.O., he withdrew to pray. And then in the first verse of our reading this morning, it says that when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. 
So first of all, they're separated from Jesus, and then also it's evening time, so it's, it's getting dark. You know, I don't know about you, but I, f- I find the water, generally speaking, to be a, um, a scary place, and especially at night, it just becomes downright eerie. Um, the sea itself is such a mysterious place. Um, at night, it just becomes amplified. You don't know what's under your feet because you can't see very far, uh, and the depth of the sea just kind of weirds us out what lives down there. The sea is not our abode. We honestly, we don't belong there. So they're on the water, and now a storm comes up out of nowhere. This is the Sea of Galilee. It's also known as the Sea of Tiberias. Technically, it's a lake. Um, It's only about eight miles wide at its widest point, about 12 miles long. And so you might think that it's no big deal to be on this lake, right? But the Sea of Galilee, as it's called, is the lowest-lying freshwater lake on the face of the earth. And cool air is known to sometimes come rushing in and displace the warm air that's normally trapped by the surrounding mountains. And that causes sudden and um, violent storms. In fact, people were known all the time to die on this lake. Storms that would come out of nowhere. And remember, from what we've read, the disciples are rowing across this lake. I mean, how else would they get across it, right? They're in a small craft. They're rowing. And they had set off in the evening from the east, heading towards the west side of the lake. So they need to travel some maybe seven to eight miles. And John says that they have gone three to four miles. Which means what? Right, they're right in the middle of the lake. And not only this, but they've been rowing now for about nine hours. We don't know this from our passage, but we know it from uh, Mark because he testifies. He also has this account. But he testifies that Jesus came to them about the fourth watch of the night, which would have been about 3 a.m. So they've been out on the sea for hours in the dark in a storm, and now they think they see a ghost. Again, that's some color commentary that Mark offers for us. But it makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, who wouldn't think that they see a ghost, even if you don't really believe in ghosts? Because a figure is now clearly approaching them, and he's walking on water. This is the stuff of nightmares, of night terrors. But it's not a ghost. It's a man coming towards them. A man who walks on water. Who walks on water? One word, really, only, right? One answer to that. God. Only God can walk on water. Only God has that kind of control over the nature that he created. Job 9, verses 7 and 8 says, Who commands the sun and it does not rise? Who seals up the stars? Who alone stretches out the heavens? And who tramples the waves of the sea? Who tramples the waves of the sea, friends? You know, God alone does that. By walking on water, Jesus is demonstrating that he is truly God. Just as he's turned water into wine, just as he's healed an official son simply by declaring him well, just as he'd healed an invalid for 38 years, just as he's fed 5,000 people and more, just as he's performed many signs on the sick, so also he gives us another sign here of his deity. 
You know, Chuck has previously been pointing out week in and week out that John's purpose in writing this book, and it's really a true refrain that we should meditate upon as we study this testimony. John says that Jesus performed many signs in the presence of his disciples. Some were recorded, others were not. But these were written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing that we might have life in his name. You see, Jesus shows them, and he shows us, that he is God by walking on water. And also by immediately delivering them to the shore when he enters the boat. I don't know if John is here describing some kind of miraculous teleportation or if he's suggesting that when Jesus entered the boat, the the storm kind of immediately calmed down and they found themselves at land almost instantaneously. But either way, it's presented to us as a miracle. This is a true miracle. No one walks on water but God alone. Actually, a a handful of people have uh, performed the trick, haven't they? I don't know if uh, you've seen the magician Chris Angel. I think he was the first to perform this trick in a pool uh, in Las Vegas. And then this guy also, who goes by the name Dynamo. Magicians seem seem to like names associated with power. Chris Angel, Dynamo, right? He performed this trick on the River Thames in London, took it a a step up. But of course, these are tricks which have since been explained and exposed. What they did is they set up plexiglass platforms just under the surface of the water and used camera angles, right? And they're walking upon that plexiglass. These guys are illusionists. They're not gods. Only God walks on water. You know, one of the ways I think we know that these tricks were charades, with regard to Chris Angel's trick, in particular, I watched it uh, on YouTube this week, he had a bunch of people surrounding him in the pool with him when he did the trick. Some of them even swam underneath him while he walked on the, so-called walked on the water, to give the illusion that there were no platforms. Of course, you can build platforms with plexiglass posts as well, right? And people can just kind of swim between the posts, so that's how they made that work. But what struck me was how happy the people were who witnessed the trick. That makes no sense. I mean, if I I thought someone was truly walking on water, that would terrify me. I'd be like, whose presence am I in? That would make him a god. God is walking on water. God is coming towards his disciples. Jesus demonstrated that he is God. But then also he declared that he is God. I know there are skeptics and critics who will say that during his earthly ministry, Jesus never expressly declared that he was God. And this may be true in the sense that Jesus never simply said, I am God. He never put it that way. He performed signs and wonders that testified to who he is. He received worship from people, including his disciples, and never corrected them for their so-called blasphemy. And he said some ridiculously audacious things that if he were a mere man would be blasphemous. Like, whoever believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Or, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to God the Father except through me. That's pretty nervy, right? So where's the declaration in this passage from Jesus that he's God? Well, I'll admit that it is a bit subtle. 
When the frightened disciples encountered Jesus, he spoke just seven words to them. It's actually just four in the Greek. Chuck gave me a short passage this morning to preach, and he only gave me four words from Jesus to work with, but they're words that are really packed with significance. Jesus says in English, we have, it is I, do not be afraid. In Greek, egoimi, me fabeste. Let me focus on those words, those first words first. It is I, or egoimi. On the one hand, this is a normal way of saying, hey, it's me. For instance, if you were to knock on someone's door and they said, who is it? In Koine Greek, you could respond, egoimi, it's me. But the interesting thing about constructing these words, ego, emi, together, is that they literally mean, I am, I am. You see, the word ego in Greek means I am. It's the word from which we get our English word, ego. ego. But then also the word emi means I am as well. So when you put them together, it's as if you're saying, I am, I am. So when Jesus comes to his disciples, he reveals himself as I am, I am. I think some of you know where I'm going with this. When we turn back the page to the Old Testament, what do we find but that God identifies himself by this very name? When Moses asks God for a name, when he says, look, you're sending me to this people, but when I go to them, they're going to ask me for your name. What do I say? Who do I say is sending me? God says, tell them, I am who I am. Tell them, I am sent you. But isn't that really kind of a a leap from one language to another? We can't really do that, can we? I mean, think about it. Should we take a Greek phrase, which means I am, or even I am, I am, if you're willing to grant me that, and equate it to a term in another language, Hebrew, which also means I am? If the languages themselves are different, isn't that just playing semantical gymnastics? By itself, is it really convincing exegesis? Well, here's the thing. When we go to the Septuagint, the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. It was a translation that was produced 200 years prior to the coming of Jesus. And it was produced because Greek was the lingua franca, was the language of the, of the world at the time. In the Septuagint, we find that God's name by which he makes himself known is none other than, you guessed it, Ego Ami. So Jesus is indeed attributing the name of God to himself here. Not only this, but as we dive deeper into this book of John, and begin to encounter what have become known as the seven I am statements. I'm sure Chuck will cover each one of them. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the resurrection and the life. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And finally, I'm the true vine. Before Abraham was, I am, says Jesus. In every one of those instances, the construction of those declarations begins with ego eimi. Friends, does Jesus ever claim to be God? You bet. Ego me. He's here. I am who I am. But we shouldn't just leave it at that. 
Jesus did not simply say, I am, and leave it there. He also said, do not be afraid. He says, do not be afraid, because of course they are afraid. Maybe they're a little afraid of the darkness and the storm. But I think the truth is that if their lives were really truly in danger, they could have just turned back towards their destination, even though they were in the middle of the lake. Again, Mark is instructive here. He says that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. So they're rowing into the wind, and they're not stupid. They're fishermen. They know the lake. They could have just turned around. Doesn't it make more sense that they're afraid of Jesus? Even if they don't know who it is that's coming. Wouldn't you be afraid if someone came up to you in the darkness of night walking on water? What would your response be if you encountered the great I am on the dark and foreboding sea? There's really only two options, right? And they're both mentioned in our text. Fear and then also gladness. These are the two essential reactions, I believe, with, with regard to encountering God. The coming of God is either a terrifying prospect or it will make us glad. Actually, I don't think it's necessarily either or. It can definitely be both and. In another similar account to this miraculous event, and we know that they're different episodes because in the other story, Jesus is actually asleep in the stern of the boat and he's with his disciples. And also Matthew and Mark give us both accounts, this one and that one. Um, The disciples are caught in another storm and Jesus rebukes the wind and the waves and the wind ceases and the sea calms down. And Mark says that after they were delivered from that storm, They were filled with great fear after they were delivered. They were filled with great fear, and they said to one another, Who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? If someone speaks to the sea and calms it down, if someone can walk on water, if someone can get in a boat with you and miraculously deliver you to your destination after nine hours of striving, this is someone you should fear. That's why Jesus says, do not fear. So then what turns fear into gladness? Because I said it's really both and. What turns fear into gladness when we encounter I am? Let me suggest that I believe it's found in apprehending that Jesus gets into the boat with us. Our text said that the disciples were glad to take him into the boat with them. You see, if if all you know about the great I am when you encounter him in the darkness and the loneliness and the futility of your striving is that he's a transcendent and powerful God that can rain down storms in your life and cease them at will, then you will only fear him. In fact, you will really only dread him when he comes. But if you know the God who took on flesh, who is still truly God because he treads the waves of the sea and only God does that. And yet, now he comes to you and says, peace, I am is here. I came for you. Do not be afraid. 
and he climbs in the boat with you just as surely as I would desire to climb in the bed with my son to alleviate his suffering, then how does that transform your encounter with God? Your fear can turn to gladness because God is for you. God is for you. Who could be against you? Welcome Jesus into the boat. It will make you glad. Jesus, I am, is for you. He comes to seek and to save you. You know, to the redeemed, Paul offers this encouragement. If God is for us, who could be against us? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Right? God doesn't condemn. It's God who justifies. Christ Jesus is the one who died, who paid the penalty. Condemnation is satisfied. And then he catches himself. He says, more than that, who's been raised to life and who is at, at the moment right now sitting at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us. Remember what Jesus was doing when he withdrew to a mountain by himself while his disciples were crossing the sea? What was he doing? He was praying. I dare say he was praying for them. And just as truly as he was praying for them, he's praying for us now. Think about that. We have a great high priest who lives to intercede for us. We can go to God with confidence. I am is praying for you. So who shall separate us from the love of God? So tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors. Not, not through our own strength, right? But through him who loved us. I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation can separate us from the love of God which is found in Christ Jesus. I hope that makes you glad. If God is for us, who could be against us? Jesus took on flesh. He took on flesh to stand in our place, to be in the boat with us. He bore the death and the condemnation that we deserve. He's been raised to life, and he now stands ready to intercede for us. And friends, one day he's coming for us. He promised not to leave us as orphans. He said he would come for us, and he will. Even in the darkness of night, even if he comes in the Last watch of night. He will come. You know, I don't want to turn this historical narrative into a parable, but I do believe that it illustrates a truth. We're going to encounter darkness and storms in this life. There are going to be frustrations headlong into the wind. But Jesus is coming. He's now interceding for us. <clears throat> and he will come for us. And when he comes... <clears throat> we will find our, our home. We will land safely ashore. You know, John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace, um, he described himself, as you may remember, as a wretch in his hymn, Amazing Grace, how sweet the, song that, the sound that saved a wretch like me. The reason he called himself a wretch is that he was a slave trader before he became an Anglican priest and then an abolitionist. And during one of his voyages, the ship that he was on, 
it was caught in a severe storm and uh, it began to take on water and sink. And uh, John Newton, who had uh, been raised as a Christian but kind of thrown away his faith, he, he cried out to God. He began praying and God took pity upon him, heard his prayer, and he uh, shifted the cargo in the hull of the ship and it plugged the hole and the ship was able to drift safely to shore. And after his conversion, Newton penned these lyrics, which have always confounded me, but I think are, are amazing lyrics. He um, says, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear." It doesn't sound right, does it? "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear." Yes, we do fear God, even when we experience His grace. But grace, my fears relieved. I hope that's your experience. Grace causes us to fear God and relieves our fears because the I am is for us. He comes to you in order to save you. He he finishes that hymn with these words, Through many dangers, toils, and snares we have already come. It's grace that's brought us safe thus far. And grace, grace found in Christ Jesus, will lead us home. I pray that that might be the case for your faith this morning. Let's pray together.